Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Asit Parikh, President and CEO at MoMA Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Asit. Hi, Rahul. How are you? Wonderful. So Asit, to kick us off, please talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Happy to, Rahul. You know, it's actually kind of funny when I sit back and I reflect on it, it's a little bit by chance that I have kind of ended up as not unusual for that to happen to people in the course of their careers. But, you know, I was pretty singular minded from the time I was pretty young. I wanted to be a physician and, you know, I didn't know what kind. I went through all different phases. I thought about orthopedics. I thought about cardiology. Everything seemed interesting. And at a certain point during my training, I realized that the ability to see patients and do something was really pretty incredible, but wouldn't it be greater if I could do something that was even more scalable than that, right? Because over the course of your life, you could only see so many patients. And one of the things that was really largely driven by a mentor of mine, Jonathan Reddy at Northwestern when I was an undergrad was, he said, you know, you're a bright guy. You come to my lab looking for research experience because you want to go to medical school. But what if there was something bigger through that research experience? What if you could actually come up with a discovery that changed the way that not just a patient is treated, a single patient, but the way that medicine is practiced? And it didn't really occur to me. And I was almost embarrassed when I went home that night. I was sort of thinking like, oh my gosh, like he's challenging me to think bigger. And my scope has just been really pretty small for like my whole life. I thought it was a big scope. But then when I realized his challenge, like that scope is so much bigger, right? And so, you know, I didn't decide on the spot that that was the right answer. I had to think about it. I eventually made the decision to apply to MD-PhD programs and landed ultimately at Vanderbilt, where I thought it was a fantastic place to train. It was a university medical center that has really everything on one campus. And the beauty of that is also it's situated in Nashville. It's a true city, but it's a small city. It didn't have the hype that it does today. It was a place you could focus almost completely, and the university was super supportive. So I spent a number of years really working on this vision of becoming a physician scientist. That took me to a couple other places. I did internal medicine training, ultimately ended up in Boston, where I, where I still am today, at Mass General, and pursuing a clinical fellowship in gastroenterology and liver disease. And at that time, I really had three things in mind, you know, when it came to career. It was patient care, it was teaching, and it was academic research. Those three things, right? That's usually what defines a typical physician scientist. And through a whole set of circumstances, part of it was a seeming disconnect between my clinical field and the research I was pursuing at the time. Late in my training, I came to the realization that I wanted to be a physician scientist, but really what I was seeing myself becoming was a physician and a scientist. Like the two didn't marry up partly because of the field that I had chosen, right? That was in my own control to study and go into deeper depth in. Part of it because, you know, I really enjoyed the clinical care and the demands of one versus the other. And specifically in the context of what I was doing at the bench didn't really marry up. And so something had to give. I ended up somewhat by chance spending a number of months 
thinking about what the right next step was and somewhat by chance ended up landing at Millennium Pharmaceuticals where I was in, I wasn't there for a specific reason other than it sort of seemed to be a job that might take advantage of all my skills. You know, I liked the idea of doing something that was a little nearer term in terms of impacting patients on a broader scale. But what project I'd work on and exactly what I do there wasn't sort of obvious. And I had really the benefit of some great mentors there. One particular one, a gentleman named Irving Fox, you know, I'll never forget. He had nothing to prove. He had worked as an academic. He had worked and taken care of patients. He'd had a successful lab. He'd given that up. He'd gone to Biogen. He'd seen multiple drugs get approved. And he was at a stage in his career where he could actually take an interest in me and guide and advise. And we were able to get a lot done. And I got some really unusual opportunities. I got an opportunity to take a project that had been largely handed back by Genentech to Millennium Pharmaceuticals and, you know, fully largely thought to be undevelopable. And I got to basically drive the clinical development of that asset and saw it go from being sort of a low priority to a medium priority to a high priority for the company. Our company was acquired by Takeda Pharmaceuticals in 2008. And the success well, the ultimate success of that molecule was not entirely predictable. When it ultimately got approved about eight years later, so long journey, many, many discussions with the FDA, so on and so forth, we got to build all around that. And that's when I really understood the power of what one could do. The ability to do large clinical trials at scale globally, at its peak, the phase three trial that I led was being run in over 40 countries and involved over 3,000 patients. Like that's the kind of effort that you really can't do from a, the academic setting. Like you can maybe conceive of it, but you can't carry it out. And that's when it really dawned on me that this was a unique, unique. Opportunity. We got to do on the heels of that success, all sorts of innovative drug development internally, externally. And I learned from two real visionary heads of R&D. One of them is the late Tachi Yamada, and more recently, Andy Plump, who's a good friend and remains a mentor. Really the way to think about the external world. So you work internally, you focus internally, you need to have everything running just right to make your success work within your team. But if you're not constantly looking in every direction around you, you actually don't see the world at all. And so we were able to, starting under Tachi and then later under Andy Build, you know, what I think is an amazing franchise that consisted of all different kinds of therapeutics at all different stages and different modalities, really for the sole purpose of benefiting patients with GI and liver disease, because that was a theme of our therapeutic area. And, you know, I enjoyed that pretty much wonderful journey at, at the beginning of, of COVID. You know, I came to the realization that, you know, we had built so much and it had been so much fun, but it was time to really put myself into a much more challenging new situation, right? It's something where like all of a sudden you had to sort of build something kind of all over again in a very different setting. And I deliberately went to look at what could be different enough that I could bring skills that could be useful. And, you know, that's what brought me to MoMA. And, you know, I'll tell you about MoMA in a little bit, but I think it's been just so rewarding to bring some of the things you know and learn some of the things that you don't in a new setting.
So I'm curious, as you think back to your time at Millennium and then Takeda as your first jobs in the sector, I'm curious what advice you would have for folks that have similar backgrounds to you in terms of, you know, if they are indeed biotech curious or pharma curious, like what is the right first place from a career development perspective? Is it some of the larger companies or do you think now the ecosystems change and it's more so biotech? I do think it depends. I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think people really need to get out and meet a lot of people and meet a lot of people not for the purpose of interviewing. Now, I did learn that every interview, every meeting, whether an interview or non-interview, is still an interview. And I think you know what I mean by that. But the, yeah. the reality is that without knowledge collection and really understanding yourself, it's tough to be certain of what the right answer is for you. And, you know, someone else really shouldn't decide that for you. You should really think hard about where it is you want to go and why. I will say, though, that, you know, when you're just getting started out, I do think that big companies offer tremendous breadth. And there is the possibility there of a little bit more exploration because there is more redundancy built in a big system that allows some of that. You know, if a project fails, sometimes moves laterally, a new project is sort of sitting there. In small companies, that's not always the case. I don't think that there is a you know prescriptive, like one should start in a big company or one must start in a small company kind of answer to that. And now skipping ahead, being the CEO at Biotech for the first time, what has that experience been like for you? And perhaps if you could share you know, some of the non-obvious learnings of being in that seat for the first time that you didn't anticipate? The experience has been sort of not too different than I thought it would be. You know, when I was sort of in my ultimate role at Takeda as kind of running a therapeutic area, there was kind of the expectation of a deep integration of strategy, whether it was on the discovery front, on the development front, or on the commercial front. And putting all that together with, a, you know, working knowledge of finance and program timelines and so on, and integrating that to try to make judgment calls about what could be done, how it could be done, ultimately being responsible for getting it done, and then sort of creation of value. All of that came on the understanding of patient needs. So because, you know, fundamentally without a patient need, there really is just no reason for that whole ecosystem to exist, right? And so that was sort of the learnings. I think most of those learnings are transferable to being the CEO of a, a small company, you know, the disciplines I talked about and so on. And so integrating all of that into making strategic decision-making and oversight of execution is second nature. There are some key differences though. And I think that, you know, you may be, those may be maybe more interesting actually is what are the key differences and what are the learnings from now sitting in the seat for a couple of years. In a small company, that breadth that I mentioned earlier isn't there, but necessarily there has to be focus. And with that come things like agility, with that come quick decision-making, with that come a real drive and urgency around moving your projects forward as fast as possible. And with that, you actually feel the ups and downs a lot more. You look at the data on a day-to-day -day basis when it's available and a data point here or a data point there can really influence the direction you think you may need to go. It may influence something that you're sort of thinking about for the future. I think those ups and downs and that speed of the sentence decline is something that I you know, wasn't entirely prepared for. I don't think you can be until you're in that seat. And so that was one of the things. The other thing that I will say, and some of this is half jokingly, and yet 
it's so true. It's that big companies, the complexity of the governance matrix is, is just so in your face and so obvious, and yet there's subtleties to getting through it. And it's sort of every company jokes about how impossible it is, and yet everybody lives it and does it, I think, for a reason. You bring in all these expertise and you somehow have to find an integrated way of making decisions go forward. And I thought I was under the impression that if you came into a small company, the structure is much simpler, that all that would just be a piece of cake. You just make a decision and it'd be all fine and you'd move forward. <laughs> and it's, it's just not that way. I mean, it requires a lot of thought. It requires a lot of understanding and working with people. It requires patience. It requires a lot of self-awareness. It's not as simple as it might seem. And that's probably the biggest learning from the, the first two years. And, you know, to that point of self-awareness, you know, being in the CEO seat, particularly at a biotech where risk is inherent in everything we do in drug development, talk to us a little bit about how you manage the emotional ups and downs of being in that seat and given that point about drug development, and then what you've kind of learned in terms of how to then communicate that risk to your team in an effective one of the main jobs, I think, of this role, not of my role here, of really, I'd say any CEO's role is just trying to be as even killed as possible, right? It's not always simple because you can sort of see the future of the company moving with these shifts in the way the data may look a day, one day here and one day there. But I think the importance of being even keeled, the importance of kind of coming in smiling, the importance of the firm handshake and the looking people in the eye and congratulating them, even when an experiment goes the opposite of the way you had hoped, matters so much because, you know, tomorrow may not be like today. You both need to impart that into people's thoughts, the confidence and the hope that we are doing something incredible and it's all going to work out and balance that with the, you know, the reality of like, okay, we took this one on the chin. And it's going to be okay. So, Asit, let's switch gears a bit. And before we jump into MoMA, I'd love to hear, given your vantage point from being at Millennium to Cata and now at a high-growth biotech, how has drug development changed and evolved over the last one to two decades? I think in broad strokes, I'd say when I entered the industry, we're moving from really large indications, common diseases and big inroads in them, sort of post the days of statin and effective sort of blood pressure lowering agents and treatment of acid reflux to probably somewhat more specialized indications, precision oncology therapeutics, you know, so on, we're sort of on the forefront. You're starting to see some modality diversification, monoclonal antibodies were sort of all over the place, really pushed forward by Genentech and Amgen to the benefit of the whole field. And I think that just like every industry, you know, the biopharma industry struggled with change. Applying principles that didn't apply both from a patient population or a drug perspective, as the focus got narrower, trying to understand how to price things properly, trying to understand, you know, how to sort of deal with competition and new concepts like market access and so on and so forth was was a real challenge, right? And so I think to some degree, the answer to that over the last number of years, if we go after increasingly and increasingly rarer diseases, where which require transformative benefit, then this industry can still flourish. And I think that to some degree was true. It was true for concepts like enzyme replacement. It was 
true in places where the you know, genetic basis of disease is incredibly well understood, areas like cystic fibrosis, so on and so forth. And we've seen some transformative drugs really come about that also helped build the companies that brought them forward. But, you know, I do think in the last couple of years, there's some caution around that model completely changing, right? So as it narrows and narrows and narrows, obviously, patients with incredibly rare diseases need therapies and we as an industry need to continue to work on them. But that can't really be the only source of sustainability. One would then have to believe that all large diseases are well treated and we don't need anything for those things, you know, and I don't think that's the case. So I think we're seeing a resurgence in the last couple of years of areas where people really want to use novel mechanisms for different kinds of treatment benefit in patient populations. The other thing that I would say is this whole concept around precision therapeutics, which is very relevant to what we do at MoMA, is not going to go away. And on the contrary, the better and better and better understanding we can get of biology, of individual sort of disease mechanisms, the more we're going to be able to identify with extreme, for lack of a better word, precision, what a patient should be treated with first, then second, then third, how, with what, on what schedule, what to look out for, and so on. And so I think that concept has been around for a couple of decades, but I think people thought it would be easier than it's been. And we're finding out it's really, really, really hard. But I do think that the continued amount of investment across the board in this industry and the kind of pulling together of people, the kind of approaching of academia to what industry is trying to do and understanding that the gap isn't really that big between the two is helping things along. And so now with that context, let's talk about what got you initially interested in MoMA and the work that you guys are pursuing now. First and foremost, just love the scientific concept. So the concept of MoMA is fairly straightforward, and the problem MoMA tackles is anything but. And so MoMA is, stands for molecular machines. And what we mean by molecular machines are sort of the workhorses of the cell, a group of 450 to 500 proteins known as ATPases. They call ATPases because they actually break apart the cellular fuel ATP and use that energy to do something important within the cell. And those particular proteins have been very difficult to drug. So Third Rock put together this idea that if you brought together all of the latest technologies that you know we are now benefiting from across the industry, that would help you understand what defines how ATPases function, that you could actually start making inroads in a more scalable way than tackling just one of them individually. And so that's the whole reason MoMA exists. That drove an investment from not just Third Rock, but some other key investors that came into the Series A. And so the company launched really with no academic licenses, no chemical matter, really just around this idea that drugging ATPases has been hard. It ought to be possible if you assemble the right tools and the right people and get going and just really, really focus. Being that this was coming out of Third Rock, would love to hear your perspective on that venture creation ecosystem and your perspective on that support and ability then to accelerate development being part of that Third Rock ecosystem would be great. Third Rock has been terrific. When you think about 
how their experience, okay, over two decades setting up companies, you know, probably around, I want to say somewhere in the order of 50 to 100 companies that they have participated in setting up across multiple funds. And just like everything, the venture ecosystem is not static. So they have to do it through different markets and so on and so forth. But the thing that Third Rock has done is start always with high science. I think it's fundamental to them. It's the core belief that eventually sort of science will prevail in terms of once you'll eventually get to the understanding if you set it up right. That understanding will, needs to be coupled with patient need. And if those two are married up together, then the rest will all work out. I think that one big benefit that we had, because I, I looked at many opportunities when I was seeking this career move, and this one stood out partly because of the focus on the scientific problem that I named earlier, that of drugging a class of undruggable thought to be undruggable targets. The second, because of the quality of how the company was set up. And Third Rock experience, you know, that spans all these companies has helped create a system of understanding what companies need to do when they set themselves up, how to get the finances right, how to put in some accounting tools, how to get talent and motivate them to actually take that step when a company is still operating in stealth mode and really believe in a vision, like that's not simple, right? Because there's no company yet. You're getting some superstars actually signing up and putting their own careers either on the line or temporarily on hold to explore an idea and help it crystallize. That was part of, I had the benefit when I came in of having seen some of those things already put together for MoMA. And, you know, I thought it was really, really well set up. And what's been the evolution of your own approach to recruiting high quality talent, given that you were in stealth mode, now you've raised significant financing. How has that role changed for you specifically? You think that this is one of the things that I think is not that different from when I was in the big pharma setting to now. I think that the importance of people is just paramount, right? And so people, but what's the selection criteria for people? So early on in my career, I would have said the selection criteria is intelligence and hard work. Look, both of those are important, but I actually more now believe that the ability to work with others and how to work with others and how to stay positive and how to be constructive and all of those things are the most important thing. Because I've seen actually people, you could look at it on paper, you could say, oh, you know what, that's sort of average training with average experience or whatever, but they can accomplish amazing things when they organize themselves in a way and work with others in a way that is uniquely productive. So we went out, I felt very comfortable on this, you know, went out and found great talent at multiple positions. You know, we're a small leadership team at MoMA. We've got a chief scientific officer. We've got head of people and culture. We've got head of finance. We've got a head of drug discovery and of computation. We selected for people who were technically superb, but we believed could work really well and understand the urgency a small company faces. And so that was not unexpected, but it also wasn't something that people ask, is it really, really hard? Is it really hard to get people into an earlier stage company? In Boston, I don't think it's really that hard. I think that, you know, people will judge individual companies on their own merit. Is it exciting? Is the science transformative for patients? Is the leadership strong? Is the, are the investors behind it? Do they look good? That can make really any company competitive if they set that up right. 
And given the current environment right now across biotech, you know, we're in the midst of a bit of a correction within our sector. How are you thinking about the current environment and its impact on, let's say, team building or your ability to continue to execute while keeping fixed costs in control? A lot of people are really carefully, carefully, carefully eyeing their books right now because it's not an easy time and people are thinking really hard about what inflections are going to drive their next capital raise. I don't feel like we've changed too much at MoMA, though, in terms of our plans versus what we're actually doing. The most important thing I'd say is, as a team, you kind of have to prepare for any market. We happened to be, when the company was launched, in a really, if you will, supportive, rich biotech market where ideas were quickly getting seeded and funded and you know you could raise as much as you want and every round was oversubscribed and there was a value multiple placed on that to a much much tougher marketing it changed pretty rapidly right it changed in the beginning of late 21 beginning of 22 depending on where you're sitting in the stage company stage chain that in the end i think that correction probably needed to happen did it need to be as extreme as it was probably not i firmly believe that there is capital out there for good ideas I think if the market were much worse than it is today, it would still be capital for really good ideas. I do think you have to be a little bit more stringent on possibly parking an idea or two that could generate value, but that doesn't necessarily drive what the company most needs in the next two or three years if you're in a really capital-constrained environment. But I'm pleased to say that I don't really feel like we've changed our research agenda. And I think part of that is that we started out with sound plans. We had stage gates on our projects and we're watching them very closely. And in terms of your own mental model about how you thread that needle of being really, really focused on, let's say, a particular asset and perhaps parking other ideas versus having multiple shots on goal if the first program fails and how you make that decision. I think there's obviously no formula to that, right? And I think that nobody can claim that they've got it right. I do. I'm one of those people that likes more shots on goal. So I have to actually constrain myself and force others to constrain me sometimes in terms of my enthusiasm for moving things forward. But part of that, I think, is not just wanting to have as many shots on goal as possible. It's also that, as I've seen and managed a really large portfolio, you can come up with a prioritization and in that prioritization, you have assumptions about how data is going to play out and what that's going to let you do and so on and so forth. And having overseen a large portfolio for a long period of time, I think that those predictions were not always accurate, right? Once the data actually plays out, you can reprioritize. And sometimes you find that things that you didn't think were going to be that important end up showing you data that you couldn't have imagined, right? And so I think getting to be too confident about what's going to happen can actually hold you back a lot and it can it can actually hurt you because if you were if you can be sure you're going to be that confident right you say okay out of these five projects my first two are going to be the winners right they're the top priority they're going to be the winners well shut down everything else just run those two i think if you run that experiment over and over again in this field with all the uncertainties and all the degrees of freedom you're going to find out that you made the wrong call and so you really have to be balanced about leaving some room for serendipity having the humility to know that your assumptions may not be true and then having the patience to try to figure out how you're going to stage things so that you can actually advance multiple shots in a really thoughtful way. 
And on the heels of that salient advice, I'd like to ask you to reflect for a minute, given your experience and both at Takeda and Millennium and across various other biotechs, if you could provide one piece of advice to your younger self, knowing all that you now know and what you've experienced, what would that be? I think this is really, really important to be able to share because it took me a long time in my career to really recognize the value of what each person does. I mentioned this mentor, Irving Fox, who had come from Biogen and he had a history of multiple drug approvals. And he'd sit me down as a really patient manager, but also as a friend and sort of say, listen, you know, I know you think this is inefficient and I know you think this is inefficient and your drive for results is really commendable and people love your energy. But if you just sit back and look at what each person is trying to do to get make this teamwork to make this project work. And as a lot of physicians, physician scientists, you come in this industry and you sort of are often kind of put in the captain of the ship role on a team. And there's a tendency to be very directive. There's a tendency to be very impatient. There's a tendency to assume that, you know, you're doing most of the work. And, you know, in the end, you realize sometimes years later, what all had to be done to support something moving forward. If I could have seen that sooner, that would have been really helpful. In the end, life is a journey. You're always learning. You never stop. And that's something that I think is a super important skill for biopharma. And it's actually coupled to what I said about earlier about also having the patience to understand that it's not just brains. Mm. It's not just hard work. How people conduct themselves and organize will determine a team's success more than any other single factor. I think that's great advice, Asif. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us today and wishing you and the rest of your MoMA colleagues continued success. Thank you, Rahul. Absolute pleasure. Enjoyed meeting. Same here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.